Space, the final frontier. Our mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. What if that final frontier is not outer space, but rather inner space? What if it's a journey into our own mind, into our own creativity? Maybe that is part of what Gene Roddenberry was actually trying to have us ex examine when he created Star Trek. When I was a boy, I loved Star Trek. And, you know, we dream of things. We dream of who we want to be. And, we'll, all, and a lot of the time, we have this idea of who we're going to be. I, I, everyone I knew, and including myself, thought that when I would grow up, I would become a professional artist. However, something I've always been curious about is the paths that we explore that lead us to where we need to go. And often that's not where we expect. For instance, imagine the path of an American boy who travels and studies martial arts with masters, ends up studying and speaking the rare language of Thai, then finds himself becoming the visual effects producer and TV shows for TV shows and movies. This individual ends up earning seven Emmy awards on shows like Star Trek Next Generation, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager, and Enterprise. Also working on feature movies like Top Gun. Well, that's the opening to the portal that we're about to enter on this delicious episode of Curiosity Bites. So grab a beverage, find a cozy corner, because that's where we're going into Warp Drive. I'm your host, Dove Barron. You can find out more about how you can hire me as a speaker or executive advisor for, uh, and strategist for yourself or your organization by going to DoveBarron.com. We are grateful for the, this episode of Curiosity Bites is brought to you in part by Magcast. Imagine having your own industry magazine. What would that be worth and what would that do to your authority? You see, whether you're a coach, a content expert, or an emerging brand, it's pretty hard to stand out from the crowd. So what if there's a proven way to increase both your perceived authority and your professional status in the eyes of your market? This is your way to go from being invisible to getting a meeting with anyone. To find out more, you can simply go to magcast.co. That's M-A-G-C-A-S-T dot C-O where first-time publishers create thriving magazine businesses. That's magcast.co. And remember that you can join in this conversation on Facebook in our Curiosity Bytes group. Uh, all right, let's jump down on this delicious episode. Mr. Dan Curry is an artist, filmmaker, martial artist, musician, whose work has been seen in over 100 feature films and television productions. He is a past VFX, Governor of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. He is best known for his 18 years on various incarnations of Star Trek, where he served as a visual effects supervisor, producer, main title designer, conceptual artist, martial arts choreographer, director, and he earned seven primetime enemy, enemy, Emmys, not enemies, Emmys from 19 nominations. He now turns his attention to writing. He has two series in development and a book co-written with Ben Robinson, Star Trek, The Artistry of Dan Curry. The book chronicles the evolution of visual effects technology and recognizes the team of artists and technicians who created Star Trek Universe. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and help me welcome another delicious episode of Curiosity Bites, Mr. Dan Curry! 
I believe that's how you say it. Kaplat. Right? Huh? Kaplat. Kaplat. That's the response. Yeah. So tell 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 them what what we just said. Uh, well, we spoke Klingon, and it's the uh, felicitation between Klingon warriors. <laughs> that's fantastic, mate. Listen, I, I'm really excited about getting into this, um, but I got to start with this. Um, you are a man who's traveled down a very fascinating path, as I said in the introduction. So, but let's start a little closer to the end of that. Who was, and I know this is a hard question, who was or is your favorite Star Trek character? Wow, that's like asking which uh, child do you like best if you have more than one? Um, and we all know you do have one. <laughs> yeah, we have one. Um, well, it uh, has to be, uh, Worf, Michael Dorn. I knew you were going to say Worf. Yes. Tell us why. Well, uh, partly because of Michael himself, uh, a man of uh, great gravitas and, and great generosity. And it was uh, really fun for me to work with Michael on martial arts. And, and Michael and I have formed a, a very good friendship. Uh, and he's a, a gentleman for whom I hold the greatest respect. Mm. So, you know, in case you don't know, uh, for those, in case you maybe don't, not followed Star Trek, um, Worf is a Klingon warrior who is now part of the Federation. He's inside there. And, you know, of course, the Federation, the Klingons were enemies. And so he's now part of the Federation. And he has certain weapons when he fights, as do Klingons. How did those weapons come about, one wonders? Well, we had an episode where Worf was to inherit a, <clears throat> a, uh, a primordial Klingon bladed weapon. And the art department, great guys, they're good friends, wonderful artists, but they sent down something that looked like a pirate's cutlass. And I said, we need to do something for the Klingons that's new and but makes ergonomic sense. I've always, even as a child, never liked phony movie weapons that were designed to be cool, but were ergonomically silly. And I'd been imagining a weapon inspired by the Chinese fighting crescent, which is a small weapon about 12 inches across and imagined a double blade much bigger in size. So I made one out of foam core and Rick Berman, our executive producer, said, well, if it was a few inches shorter, I'd accept it. And I showed him some tricks that I'd made up for it. And I'm holding up now the Look at that, uh, Batleth number one. And it's uh, curved. So what is that made of, Dan? Because so, so if, if you're listening and not watching, uh, Dan is holding up the weapon, the, the Klingon weapon that Wolf would have had, which is like a big arc. Um, with two blades on the uh, inner blades and then uh, there's handles where you can hold it. It's so cool. And it so looks like it's made out of a cheek in the handle and then steel on the outside. Well, uh, this one's made out of tempered aluminum and uh, for fighting, we had uh, uh, steel, very thin steel surrounded by rubber so the actors wouldn't hurt each other. And <clears throat> So it, there's a funny story where our stunt coordinator, the wonderful Dennis Madalone, 
I showed it to him and he said, I can't work with that, it's terrible. And then I showed him some tricks with it and he said, oh, I could work with that. And he became <laughs> one of the evangelists of this weapon. And interestingly enough, it was the first new bladed weapon approved by the Korean Martial Arts Association for, for training. And the Navy Department of Research sent somebody to visit me and uh, talk about the ergonomics of bladed weapons. And then when Michael Dorn signed on to Deep Space Nine, I got a phone call from him and it's, he said, Daniel, I need a new weapon. And he came over to the house and I showed him different blades from my uh, collection of weapons I brought back from Asia and suggested the tip of a Nepalese Kora sword. And Michael and I worked on it. And the important thing, it had to be small enough he could hide behind his back, but lethal enough that it could take on a bat lift. So this is the very first one. I'm holding up a, uh, a mech lath made out of cardboard. And yeah. the, the tip is a down curved, heavy blunt end uh, that's used for hacking. And then I wanted the handle to be able to cut in any direction and also grapple opponent's weapons. So and this thing is made of cardboard as we're looking at it with duct tape wrapped around it and a couple of lollipop sticks holding the handle together. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that is correct. And that's so Michael and I went out in the backyard and fooled around with it. We decided on it and this one was approved without change. And and here is a we had both rubber and metal ones and now wow, look at that one made of tempered aluminum and so you can hold it uh for so is that pretty is that is that pretty heavy or is it pretty light it's uh reasonably light it's is also it? made of tempered aluminum and right. so you can use it backhand forehand and you can actually throw it like a hatchet as kirk douglas did in the vikings <laughs> yeah that is very cool man you know, so you, you know, you, you, I'm going to come back to all of where you, you know, you ended up there, but your journey is, is a pretty fascinating journey. And, and it's really interesting. I mean, it's one of the things I love about this particular show about Curiosity Bites is that all our guests are freaks and weirdos. And, and I mean that in the, in the most wonderful way, it's a complete compliment in that we, we don't tend to fit in in the usual world world and we've normally gone on these extensive journeys to end up on this long and winding road that takes us where where we have been i mean uh you know we've been off off track with where we thought we might have gone and, and you you know you started out um with the peace corps after you left school and uh building dams and bridges in uh northeast thailand talk to us a little bit about your you know, how that happened and how that has led you on. When I graduated from college, I went to Middlebury College in Middlebury, Vermont. Uh, wonderful. About as far away from Thailand as you can get. Yeah, winters are the same, though. Um, <laughs> and I wanted to serve. The Vietnam War was going on, and I did want to serve, but I wanted to serve in a way that did not require taking other people's lives. So I felt the Peace Corps was a good way to serve the country. Mm -hmm. And I was trained in Hawaii and we were sent to Northeast Thailand and 
our job was to build small dams and bridges. So I got to have the most treasured experience of living in remote villages before electricity arrived. Wow. So I got to experience that culture prior to uh, electricity and the arrival of consumer items like refrigerators, electric fans, radios, TVs, Wow. where they changed that culture forever. So mm -hmm. interestingly enough, that ultimately helped me on Star Trek because living in other cultures made me appreciate the fictional alien cultures that were created by Gene Roddenberry and the writers. And yes. I got to be able to imagine styles of architecture. And if you look at the exterior of Klingon architecture, it, it's kind of a combination of Laotian, Thai, and Nepalese architecture. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting for me because um, like the, the symbol of the Klingons, the symbol of the Klingons looks like the, uh, the Sikh symbol. It does. Right. And that's when I, when I first saw it, I went, oh, because I studied religions, right? And so I was like, oh, that looks like the Sikh symbol. Is it, do you know if that came out of that at all or if there's a connection in any way? Uh, I, I can answer for that. That would be Mike Okuda, who designed a lot of our graphics. Right. But <clears throat> I'll show you something here. Uh, for Here's a painting I did in Kathmandu, Nepal. This is the view from the Shrestha Lodge and it depicts uh, uh, Nepalese pagodas uh, with many stories. And you can see uh, the similarity between Klingon architecture. And here's the a Klingon lamasery, which I used. Yes. Uh, mountains from the Canadian Rockies and, and uh, uh, Himalayan architecture. Yeah, that's fabulous. Look at that. That's beautiful. Magnificent. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, it's a great way of, uh, great way of showing it. And for those of you who are just listening, so imagine that you're looking at the top of, of, of the mountaintop, maybe you're imagining so, some great Buddhist temple on top of Himalayas, but instead this is designed as a Klingon uh, temples. It's absolutely beautiful. And uh, if you if you do want to see the videos of this, uh, you can do that, of course, inside of our Patreon channel. If you go over to uh, patreon.com forward slash Dalvaron, you'll find access to uh, these videos and all these beautiful imagery that Dan has brought with him today to show us. And I mean, if you if you are seeing it in video, I mean, these images are stunning. And you you did you hand paint all these? Yes. Right. So that that's an interesting thing for me because you know, as I said, I was an artist as a child, um, but I would have. I would have imagined that a lot of the art has gone digital now and is not canvas. Is that, is that the uh, case? That's or not? true now, but yeah. uh, in those days uh, we uh, worked in oils. And worked in oils. Yes. And wow. I, See that right oil. there is a surprise to me because people who don't know, first of all, oils take a long time to dry. And with an acrylic, you could, you know, you can get some of the same textures, um, and, but it dries a heck of a lot faster and oil can get smudged and damaged and you know, it can take a long time to dry. So why was oil? Why was that the medium? Oils have a, a richness, uh, an opacity, a, a natural color. 
and the the long drying time makes it easier to blend and get rid of brush strokes so that the verisimilitude is is easier to obtain and there were the great mad artists albert whitlock matthew urisich peter ellenshaw and peter's son harrison ellenshaw and sid dutton who was uh, and uh, started out as an apprentice to Albert Whitlock and Sid did uh, as many matte paintings for us as we could afford because he's such a, a fabulous artist. So give us, a, give us an idea of scale. That's the Borg we're looking at right now. Yeah, this is a painting by Sid Dutton and it's the interior of the Borg cube and it's this incredibly complex uh, system of ramps and machinery and platforms and we the real set was a very small part of the the painting and mm -hmm. it was rear projected into the painting on a piece of rear projection material by Sid's partner Bill Taylor and to get this sense of being a lattice of, in three dimensions as they shot the matte painting pulling back they would stop the camera on the dolly track once in a while and build a little mechanism out of legions of power toys and then back up and so it felt like you were going through a three-dimensional network of pipes and tubes amazing so give us and a give, give us an idea of scale how feet. how big would that painting be about 10 feet by 10 feet wow and what's the timeline like doing creating something like that said did that painting in about two weeks that's insane that's so fast i mean there's so many details in this piece when we used to do uh i early on worked on buck rogers and when we oh, did you really yeah <laughs> and let's see i have something from buck Rogers. oh here, here we go this is a painting of a of a space station for buck rogers yeah beautiful and the center part was actually a physical model uh, and then to show the we didn't have time to build a, a full model so i made a large print of the physical model and then painted everything else around it in oils very cool very cool so let, let's go back a bit, Dan. Uh, um, you know, as a kid, was, you know, did you dream of being an artist or did you see a show or a movie or something that went, you know, like Metropolis? Like, I remember seeing Metropolis and thinking how insane it was, like the, the artistry, you know, like the original silent movie with, you know, with the, with the, um, the robot woman and, and, you know, I mean, a lot of the design in that became New York City, right? So what what was your inspiration early on? Were you, did you look to be an artist? Were you looking to be something else? What was it? I was always an artist. Uh, I can't mm -hmm. remember not drawing and, and painting and making things. My grandfather had a workshop in the basement and I learned to work with tools and, and love working with wood. Certainly Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon, the Buster Crab versions, the Republic serials yeah. were an inspiration. Love those. And I, when I first saw 
the beast from 20,000 fathoms, I could tell that there was a difference between the, the dinosaur and the background. There's a different degree of cinematic reality. Right. I read an article how Ray Harryhausen uh, pulled off the visual effects for that. So I had a broken eight millimeter movie projector that could only advance one frame at a time with a knob. So I shot an eight millimeter movie of my brother running around screaming and cut a hole in the bottom of a cardboard box and rear projected onto tracing paper, the movie of my brother, and then moved a frame by frame, this stiff toy dinosaur in the foreground, but it was fun and got to create an illusion. And many years later, I got to have dinner with Ray Harryhausen and uh, told him it was his fault. I was doing what I was doing. <laughs> How old were you when you did that little frame About by frame? 12. Wow. That is so cool. So it seemed like, so it seems like uh, even then there was a, um, uh, a fairly natural movement towards visual effects more than being a gallery artist. I hadn't thought about it that way, but that's true. Another influential film was Forbidden Planet. And my mother took me to see that at Radio City Music Hall for my birthday. Oh, yeah. And introducing uh, Leslie Nielsen, who became famous later on for other roles. And he was not the, quite the same roles. <laughs> uh, he was the inspiration for Captain Kirk. And it's really. Uh, Leslie Nielsen was? Yes. The Canadian actor? The inspiration for Captain Kirk. If really? Forbidden Planet, and you look at the original series, there are a lot of similarities. Right. And Gene, even uh, Gene Roddenberry told me that. Yeah. And I began to be aware that there was a, a combination of paintings, models, and cartoon animation mixed with live actors and incredible sets that was able to create a a world reality mm -hmm. cinema that was not possible in any other medium. Right. So I got to ask this because, you know, I, got, I think people would want to know this. When you say, so I know what I do for a living and I know what happens to me when I'm seeing things that I can that are in my my field of expertise so when you're watching a movie do you see visual effects or do you see the movie can you separate can you enjoy the movie without i guess that's what i'm asking can you enjoy the movie without picking apart the visual effects or admiring visual effects and and sort of you know diagnosing it uh yes and no i, I have to i can't separate the craftsmanship of the film. Right. I can always admire what the great artists who are creating the effects for these films have achieved. And I especially love early visual effects. There's a wonderful film by Fra directed by Frank Capra called Dirigible about a US Navy expedition to the Antarctic in a giant airship. Mm. And the effects are Neolithic, technology-wise compared to what's possible today, but they have a, a charm and an artistry that 
that makes them unique and, and admirable. I, I love early matte paintings because they are so beautifully designed, even though they don't have that absolute reality of, of today's achievements. I mean, because it, it's fascinating because, you know, I'm sure this is true for you, too. I sometimes see a movie and I'll see the movie and love it and fall in love with it or, or whatever it is. And particularly because I'm an artist that, you know, I enjoy the, the artwork of it. And then I see that same movie 10 years later. I'm like, God, this is crap. <laughs> like, because it's, you know, as a, as a visual effects movie, right? It's like, it's so obvious that it's lame. Or, you know, it's like those old movies from the, from the 40s and the 50s where, you know, the driver's driving and they're, they're moving the wheel around so much. I'm like, if you were driving like that, you would be all over the road. And, and you can tell there's a, there's a rolling screen in the back of them. But back in the day, well, I'm sure when you're watching that, it seemed very real. Well, yeah, audiences have grown in their visual sophistication. Right. And I know that feeling well about my own work. I, I yeah. looked at some early, early episodes and things I've done for early, early films. And I kind of grit my teeth. How could I have done that? But at the time, it would have been outstanding, right? I mean, I think this is one of the things, psychologically, I think it's one of the things about human beings that we all need to understand. I think that we're very likely to, to beat on ourselves and go, you know, what? how did I even allow that to happen? But, you know, one of the things I've spoken a lot about, I speak a lot about in my work is the power of context. And the minute that you're out of context, things are completely different. And so we look at certain things in history, we look at certain individuals in history, and we say, how could that possibly be? But in the context of the moment, it makes sense. So, you know, the context of the moment, you know, and the analogy I, I give is, how does somebody like Idi Amin come to power? How does uh, Adolf Hitler come to power? How does Pol Pot come to power? How does these mass murderers come to power? And there's no way to fully grasp that in the context of this moment. But in the context of that moment, it actually probably made perfect sense. And I think that that's the same with anything in our lives, including art. Like, you know, so the, the art that you created was probably spectacular in that context. In this context, it might be different. Well, I think that's true with the history of art, but... It's also true that art is the, the chronicle of, of human history, that we understand ancient times through the art that has survived. Absolutely. And if yeah. you look at the, the history of painting, say the great fresco artist Giotto, um, his work was the transition from medieval art to the beginning of the Renaissance. Yes. And his perspective was very naive, but yet there was a beauty about it. Uh, that's why it inspired subsequent artists to get more and more real. And when Albrecht Durer in the 1400s really figured out perspective, that changed everything. What is art to you? Art is in any medium, whether it's music, visual arts, film, it's the reaction of the creator to the phenomenon of being alive. And mm. it's sharing that experience with others. 
And each work of art in its own way is really a self-portrait, no matter what the subject is, because it's a portrait of the artist's perception of what they are experiencing at the time they've created that piece. That's I I actually love that. I love what you're saying there, you know, because we know I, I'm a writer as well. And, you know, uh, and I write mostly nonfiction, but I've written fiction stuff. And, and, you know, when I was writing my fiction stuff, one of my mentors said to me, um, you do realize that all fictional work is autobiographical. And I was like, yeah, I can see myself in this. <laughs> it's a way to, it, it, and in many ways, it's kind of like, uh, it's a way to reveal one's psyche to the world through the dark <laughs> and the light. Well, and I, I know some very well-respected Hollywood screenwriters, and they told me two things about writing that are influencing what I'm doing today. And one of them is there can be more truth in fiction than in a historical document. Yeah. And the other is uh, nothing can be fixed that does not exist. Say that again. That's a, I think this one's important. Nothing, nothing can, can be, be fixed, fixed that, that does, does not, not exist. exist. So tell what does that mean to you? That's well, that's it, it it means in, in terms of writing mm -hmm. that just get through, get it down on paper. Don't worry about details or style. Just get the story out, and then now that it exists, you can go back and fix it and mm. make it perfect. Like it took Virgil ten years to write the Aeneid. Be, apart from the difficulty of writing an iambic pentameter. Um, <laughs> Minor detail. Uh, uh, but just making it perfect from, for his mind. And I find in certain pieces of art, I will spend two or three years and I'll, there's certain pieces I'll leave up and just go back and I'll notice something and, and diddle with it a little bit. Mm. You know, I've often said that I believe it's my my it's my illusion, but I believe that we are all artists. That we are all artists, but we we resist our own creativity, and you know, a lot of there's a lot of social reasons for that, including the fact that we don't trust ourselves and that we are afraid of rejection, and and I think that when you you know, like what you're saying there about, you know, you've got to let it out. And, and one of my writing coaches years ago said to me, and it's a similar principle to what you're saying is write for the waste paper basket. Don't write for an editor. Don't write for a publisher. Don't write for an audience, write for the waste paper basket. And I didn't understand that at first. And what it simply was saying was write as if you're just going to throw it away. So you just get it out. And even if you write 20 pages and there are three lines that stand out that are magnificent. That's your three lines. You wrote the 20 pages to get the three lines. And, and, uh, and I think that oftentimes creatively, we don't do that because I, I can remember having conversations with people who say, but I'm not an artist. I, I had a client many, many, many years ago, like probably 20 years ago. And I, I could see this creativity bubbling away inside of her. And I said, I want you to go buy some cheap piece of canvas and buy some paints or, and just start painting. And she's like, but I can't paint. I can't even draw matchstick men. And I was like, that's okay. 
I'm going to give you a feeling and I want you to dry, draw a feeling. And she's a paint a feeling. She's like, what do you mean? I said, whatever colors, whatever form, just, you know, I want you to paint anger or sadness. So, you know, her art is in galleries now. I own two pieces of her art. Well, I think art is about the visual arts, like painting are about that moment somebody sees it before they can think of words to apply to it. Mm -hmm. That's and, beautiful. And it becomes internal. And that's what the, the, the work is really about. And that's what gives meaning to the viewer is they have this feeling that is a verbal it's without words. And, and that's a true feeling. I, so the I art elicits, elicits an emotion within that person that is beyond verbalization in that moment. That is correct. Beautiful. I used to teach art. Um, when I came back from overseas, I taught art. I did medical illustration for a couple of years and then did uh, taught uh, at Cape Cod Community College, uh, studio arts, drawing, painting, uh, mixed media. And in teaching art, I discovered, as Shakespeare did in Taming of the Shrew, one of the characters said, well, if you want to learn about something, declare yourself a professor of it, and the people will pay you to learn it. Love and, that. And that's what I did on Cape Cod. But teaching it, I learned from the students and those who, as you said, felt themselves least, least gifted, I explained to them that what gives your art value is that it's your art, that the saddest occupation is an Elvis impersonator, because no matter how good they get at impersonating Elvis, they're not Elvis. Yeah. And if you intend to copy the, the work of another artist, if you do so, do it as a technical exercise to learn something about that person's creative technique, but it has no value from you and just find ways to make your work fit on the surface as beautifully as possible from your own perspective. And then I taught them about balance and shapes, the rule of threes, different ways to get things so that it looks pleasing, but always trying to do it from their perspective. That's why the work of Pablo Picasso is so brilliant my favorite quote from him is when I was a child, they taught me to paint like an adult. When I became an adult, I realized I had to paint like a child. Beautiful. And that's beautiful. And th that sort of freedom. Um, talking about long-term work, I just put up on the screen. Yeah. A piece I worked on for two years. Wow. It's a, uh, for those who are only listening, it's a five foot high, uh, charcoal on canvas and I sat my son down when he was about 15 did a sketch of his face and just started making strokes in what I call stream of consciousness art mm -hmm. and and it just evolved into this and every time I'd walk by I'd see something I'd like to change or add to it and and it's a face extruding from the trunk of a strange tree that as it gets closer to the ground, it becomes made out of pebbles. Mm -hmm. And there's a beam of light that goes through a foggy environment of uh, several trees in a row that are connected by this beam of light. What it means, I have no idea. It well, just but also like the texture on the trees 
looks a little like brain matter. Well, that was certainly excluded from me. <laughs> well, I mean, just I'm just saying for me looking at it right now, right? It, it looks like, you know, the um, a raw brain. It's pretty cool. It's beautiful work. You are, are a very skilled and talented artist, Dan. Listen, we are already at, at the end of our first first episode here in this series with my, uh, my special guest, Dan Curry, who is the author of a brand new book called Star Trek, The Artistry of Dan Curry. He worked on the uh, many iterations of Star Trek. We're going to be back with part two uh, of this series and discovering more about his journey into becoming the uh, the amazing guy that he is. We're going to talk about uh, his design work. We're going to talk about his music. We're going to talk about the, the, the many iterations and explanations of who he is, including martial arts and many more areas. So stay with us. Stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. And we'll see you in part two. <laughs>